One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, What the f? Are you talking about you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 upfront for 3 months plus taxes and fees, promo rate for new customers for a limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Good evening. By pressing play, you've unlocked a door with the key of imagination. Beyond is another dimension, a dimension of sound. A dimension of mind. You're moving into a land of both shadow and substance, of things and ideas. Welcome to Agoraphobia, the Agora Podcast Network's spooktacular month of ghoulishly engaging content, celebrating the spirit of the Halloween season. So turn on all the lights, check all the closets and cupboards. Look under the beds and continue if you dare. Today on Agoraphobia, Claude Myron Guzer returns and brings a friend to discuss the canonical works of horror in order to bring to you the Cannonball Halloween Spectacular, the single most anticipated holiday special since. Star Wars' disastrous 1978 debacle. And could anything be more terrifying? How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, and welcome to the Agoraphobia special podcast event. <laughs> this is our regular network-wide uh, spooky Halloween special, and this is Claude from The Cannonball. Uh, we've got something really, really fun for tonight. Uh, Daniel and I made friends with uh, Lawrence, and Lawrence is one of the co-hosts of the Bad Time Radio podcast, and Lawrence is also the most intelligent man on the genre of horror fiction. He knows anything and everything about the genre. And Daniel and I were talking about maybe doing a, a sort of special episode or <clears throat> or something having to do with... I guess a horror canon. And we thought maybe we'd suss out Lawrence for some information on what might be considered canonical horror. And he just sent us this gigantic list of a ton of stuff that, and you know, the ins and outs of how this sort of takes this and diverges and this goes in this direction and this does this. And Daniel and I talked and said, maybe we should just have a conversation with Lawrence. <laughs> he knows all this stuff backwards and forwards. And so uh, Daniel might pop in. He might not pop in. He's probably not going to make it tonight because he's getting the young one down. So it is my pleasure to present Lawrence from Bad Time Radio. He and I are going to discuss some works that he thinks are sort of canonical entries into the genre of horror fiction. Lawrence, thank you so much for coming on and doing this. This is really fantastic stuff. Uh, uh, thank you so much for having me, Claude, and thank you for making every white man's dream come true by just sort of taking my recommendations about various works <laughs> of media and actually listening to them. <laughs> so, all right, before we get to... to um... I know you're being tongue-in-cheek there, but before we get too far into the canon, I do want to um, sort of talk a little bit about the Bad Time Radio podcast. If if you enjoy, if anyone out there enjoys old radio and listening to people sort of talk about, analyze, dissect, and kind of poke fun at old radio shows, particularly old horror radio shows, please check this out. It's a lot of fun. Daniel and I have both been on. And um, the the stuff that you guys come up with is just astounding and weird and bizarre and a lot of times legitimately creepy. So I, I got to put that plug in uh, and just sort of give you a little bit of praise for doing that. That it, It's Aww. a lot of fun. So please listen. Um, but now that we've got that out of the way, uh, tell us about horror. So what are we reading tonight? And what is the genre? And just what do you know? Okay, so uh, horror is kind of a weird genre because it's different from like science fiction or fantasy or anything because it's not, there are horror tropes, but horror itself isn't a collection of horror tropes. So, you know, if I go in and put a mad slasher in my story, it's probably, you know, it's a horror story, but I don't have to, to make it horror. Instead, it's something more along the lines of tragedy, where some, the thing that unites horror is that it serves, or it's striving to elicit some kind of emotion from you, usually a negative one. Often mm -hmm. fear, but also despair. And we're actually, a couple, one of the ones we're reading tonight, I think, is legitimately a classical tragedy. And um, I actually will kind of think that horror and tragedy are kind of sort of two sides of the same coin, really, and it's often sort of hard to tell the difference between the two. Um, yeah, and for I see this, where you're coming from. 
Oh, yeah. no, sorry, I, I don't mean to step on you, but I, I see exactly where you're coming from. Like, tragedy has to do with the inevitability of the horrible thing that's going to happen. And it often sort of, it elicits that despairing response by sort of luxuriating in the horrible thing that's going to happen. So if you think back to, like, Agamemnon, um, the, all throughout that play, there's, like, this creeping dread that reaches a crescendo when Cassandra, who can see exactly what's going to happen and nobody believes her, tells her own death she foretells her own death and describes how she is going to be hacked to pieces right and there's no way out right so it's that 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 doom and that doom eagerness that sort of like goes through the genre of tragedy and kind of goes through the genre of horror as well i see what you're talking about there yeah and also just the general outline i think the actual definition of a tragedy is it's a story about a great person or a person who is in some way exceptional who looks like they're going to achieve something, but because of an innate character flaw in themselves is instead Mm. destroyed. And that's like also the plot of a great many, for instance, tales from the crypt episodes. (laughs) Gotcha. So So if, if go ahead, uh, sorry, nah, didn't mean to salt your game. No, no, no. I was going to say, so if it's if it's doing the tragic thing, it's also doing the horror comics from the 40s thing. And uh, maybe we can go back and argue the comics code if we have a time machine. Yeah. Um, so anyways, when I was approaching this project, uh, the, hor- the idea of throwing together a horror canon is a little bit tricky because, you know, there's obviously going to be a lot of arguments about, like, what horror stories are canonical. And the ones that, to my mind at least, are settled are mostly going to be 19th century stories written by white men. And realistically, a lot of them are kind of going to be about being scared of racial minorities or women who don't know their place. You know, and they'll be disguised and they'll still be very well written and no shine on them. But so instead, what I've tried to do is sort of throw together kind of a horror, not quite starter pack, but a horror sampler, if you will, to try to show the very many different things that the genre can do. So uh, Mm -hmm. we eventually settled on eight horror stories. Uh, Mm -hmm. We'll go through them in chronological order. I would also urge whoever's listening to this to check the show notes because we are probably going to spoil the ending on a couple of them. And Mm -hmm. um, a lot of them are all about the ending. And um, each of them sort of is designed to show you a different thing about horror. Right, right. But uh, before then... uh, I guess, Claude, what do you like about horror? I mean, why'd you have me on to discuss a genre? I assume you like it. I do. And, you know, this is weird. I guess in in our chats sort of surrounding the thing, one of the things that we were talking about is uh, you're very drawn to horror fiction. And my entryway into horror was cinematic. Like, I I guess (laughs) to delve every year when we do this, I go further and further into my own psyche and reveal more and more uh, of the stuff that I probably should be revealing to a therapist rather than like an audience of who knows who's listening. Uh, But when I was a kid, like there was something sort of uh, uh, attraction repulsion about horror. It was very vibrant, right? Uh, It was always the sort of sparkly thing on TV that sort of drew you to it. And at the same time sort of repulsed you from it. Like um, when, you know, it was the stuff you weren't supposed to watch, but you wanted to watch anyway. And I was always sick around Halloween, so I didn't get a chance to go out and Aww. go trick-or-treating. No, no, no. I, like, I think um, my body is trying to kill me. I, I have very severe allergies, and I was always you know, really, really sick around the beginning of fall, which is when 
there's a lot of pollen in the air. There's new dust and new things in the air. I mean, there's pollen in the air in spring, but there's also like other kinds of things. Uh, it gets rainy. There's tons of mold. And it's, I, I was always sick on Halloween. I would get three houses in and then my sister would have to take my, my plastic um, jack-o'-lantern uh, candy carrier around and go get candy for me and bring it back. So it was always sort of like the, 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 um, the holiday I couldn't participate in. So instead, I was sort of like stuck inside watching Dr. Gruesome's movie morgue on Channel 35 and like whatever ridiculous nonsense they were, they were sort of spluttering out. But it, I realize now that a lot of what uh, I was sort of being exposed to, you know, inadvertently was sort of like Hammer films and things sort of in that um, 60s, 70s, gothic, over the top, um, very technicolor horror mold. And that's what I'm talking about. It's, it's visually appealing in some way. And it's that kind of like over-the-top visual thing that I think drew me in. When I was in high school, uh, the local video shop, the local uh, movie store, would rent uh, movies for $2 a rental or $2 a night. Wow. And yeah, I know. <laughs> this was back in the day. And so uh, I could just like on a Friday or Saturday night, me and my friends could just scrape together whatever change we had around in the car and get a handful of whatever was just the most atrocious looking garbage and sort of sit down and watch it. And it, it was sort of like being drawn to the gruesome stuff, drawn to the grim stuff, probably because I was a depressed teen at the same time. But coming out of it, you know, I, I really sort of see the 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 draw of the gothic, the way that it explores sort of like extreme psychological states or the way that it can kind of explore the dark corners of the the the, con the conscious or the subconscious that you don't want to, you know, drag into the light of day. And more and more, I see my fascination with the romantic and fascination with um, the romantic in modernism and, and the postmodern as being connected to the Gothic. I mean, it, it really does have these sort of tentacles down there. Um, how about yourself, man? What, what draws you to the genre of horror fiction? This is a question I've asked myself a lot. So I was an extremely <laughs> frightened kid. And I grew up in Me a, too. an absolute, like, this is, we moved when I was eight, so my memories might be mm. wrong, but there is a place about 30 minutes outside of Albuquerque, there's just these enormous mountains called the Sandias, and I grew up um, on them, essentially, in this thing, or this place called Tijeras Canyon, and my memory is that we were like a quarter mile on either side, we had this enormous lot, quarter mile on either side to the nearest other house, and, mm. um, you know, we had a pretty big house, and... Uh, we had a deck, and I'd go out and hang out there at night. And the weird thing about it was, I mean, it's pretty spooky anyways, because, you know, it's like an alpine sort of desert-ish pine forest. Uh, a mm -hmm. lot of weird noises, a lot of coyotes. But also, uh, there is a freeway that runs through Tijeras Canyon, and some weird acoustic trick. It's, it's on a major shipping, um, you know, truck route. And some mm -hmm. weird acoustic trick of the canyon meant that the sounds of the freeway and the trucks going by would sound like sort of distant, like a weird combination of whale song and screams. And it was just nonstop <laughs> is my memory of it, at least. So I, the absolutely terrifying place to grow up as a young boy. Um, I think I'd always been kind of attracted to at least monster movies. And then there was an offhanded yeah. reference to Lovecraft and PC Gamer. And for some reason that like set my like little brain off on fire and I absolutely had to go get a Lovecraft book. Then I started burning through those, and then I just, I was hooked, so I kept, like, the weird thing about Lovecraft is, um, 
there's so many pastiches of him and so many influences of him. He's such a like well studied nerd author that I mean we're gonna talk about him later. He was a bastard and I yeah. kind of wish he wasn't as important as he is. But the act of like trying to exhaustively explore Lovecraft just exposed me to a bunch of other like horror fiction and like old chaosium anthologies mm-hmm. that I would send away for. And by the time I was in high school and they had this and I had a, access to a surprisingly well-stocked horror section in my school library. I was absolutely hooked. and would spend all of my free time reading through it. And, uh, yeah. I think the other thing that draws me to, to it is that, um, for whatever reason, I have trouble intuiting people's, like, emotional states, even mm-hmm. when it's written out. And so literary fiction is kind of troublesome for me because it's almost entirely consumed with people's emotional states. Uh, whereas horror tends to be incredibly plotty and the emotions are pretty easy to guess. I don't know how yeah. someone would feel if their wife that they were ambivalent about but had grown accustomed to left them. But I do totally know how a person would feel if they got hit with a chainsaw, you know? <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. No, I, I, I think there's there you're getting at something. There's something about the genre and, and something about genre fiction usually that, that tries to go for the affect in a way or or it's it's telling you that it's going for the affect in a way that um sort of psychological realist fiction or so-called psychological realist fiction doesn't i i I mean i we're we're being extraordinarily digressive straight from the beginning but this is something that i try to teach when i teach my intro to lit classes you can look at um, psychological realist fiction as yet another genre with genre constraints like uh, i just taught this section where we looked at Chekhov's Lady with the Pet Dog, uh, Carver's Cathedral, um, Baldwin's Sunny's Blues, Lahiri's Temporary Matter, and Juno Diaz's Drown. It's all the same story. It, it, it really is all the same story, just with different beats and different... Like, it's all the same beats, it's just different settings. And it, it, it functions in the same way. At, at this point in the 21st century, it's almost like the genre has been exhausted or it's, it's so exhausted that it can't hide its genre-ness anymore. Um, whereas something like horror, I think, is, is making its claims for affective response right on the surface, right? I, I mean, honestly, I think that's what's going on. I think that's, that's sort of what you're, you're, you're being attuned to, you know? So yeah, I think that's a a, a really wonderful insight, honestly. Um, all right, cool. So um, one yeah. other, th- so um, you know, if you're just listening to this and you're like, okay, I'm sold on this horror stuff, uh, I'd like to get sort of an overview of the genre and not just go through the books or the stories we're saying. Uh, the great thing about horror fiction is that it generally isn't short stories, which means you can go out and just get like, like doorstop or anthologies of the stuff. And, uh, the two or the three I would recommend if you're just like, I want to get started on horror are foundations in fear and the dark descent by David G Hartwell. These are published in the, I think late eighties, early nineties. So they're not a hundred percent up to date. And this was also before anyone had to, was required or thought to give a shit about diversity. So they lean pretty heavy towards like white dudes uh, and very heavily towards English. I think that there's only a couple of things in it that are translated, but they're still very good starting points for overviews of the genre. And then it's a little bit more constrained, but it also emphasizes diversity and non-English content a lot more. Uh, the collection The Weird by Jeff and Anne Vandermeer is also a very excellent starting place, although, again, it's constrained because it's only focusing on weird fiction, which is a small subset. Well, not a small mm-hmm. subset. It's a lot of horror fiction, but not the whole thing. 
Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. Are cool, cool. Anyways, cool. I'm 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 actually typing those down as we speak, and I'm gonna look those up later. All right, cool. So the stories we've got for tonight are M.R. James, Count Magnus, Clark Ashton Smith's The Charnel God, Theodore Sturgeon's Bright Segment, Shirley Jackson's The Witch, Octavia Butler's Blood Child, Clive Barker's Rawhead Rex, Laird Barron's <clears throat> excuse me, Shiva Open Your Eyes, Nadja Balkin's Propatria, and Mariana Enrique's Neighbor's Courtyard. All right, so let's go back in time, start at the beginning, M.R. James, Count Magnus. What is this? Walk us through this and tell us why it's important. Okay, so M.R. For, there's a couple of things going on here. M.R. James was a very well-regarded Oxford scholar. I think he specialized in like church history or something. That doesn't matter. None of his scholarship is memorized. <laughs> but a weird side of, or thing about English like intellectual life and being a man of letters is that you're sort of required for some reason to write ghost stories at Christmas. So he started writing ghost stories at Christmas, and it turned out he was incredible at it. Uh, so he wrote a bunch of short stories. Uh, I think they were originally collected in Ghost Stories of an Antiquarian. And I sort of just picked this one because it's the one I have the most fondness for. However, mm-hmm. the the point in selecting this is there's a lot of 19th and early 20th century horror authors who were very important to the development of the genre um, and who a lot of people will pick up on. Uh, I didn't want them to dominate this. And also, although this might have been because I read them when I was in middle and high school and they're a little bit more subtle... Uh, mm-hmm. I think a lot of them are kind of boring, but James yeah. isn't to me. So I picked him as kind of a stand-in for the entirety of the <laughs> late 19th and early 20th century uh, genre, or horror uh, in the English world, of course. Well, actually, even more yeah. specifically in the Anglosphere, because yeah. um, there, there were different and weirder things happening in America in this time period, which is a little bit unfair to all of these authors, because they are, of course, very different. Arthur Machen mm-hmm. and... Uh, Algernon Blackwood have very little in common with James other than they wrote horror stories. But I did it anyways because it's my list and I can do what I want. <laughs> um, and this is... Or would you, should I do the summary or would you like to? Just very Please quickly. go ahead. Please go ahead. Because um, when summarizing, we're also analyzing. And I, I want your take on this. So um, the thing that... There are a couple of things I like about James. But one of them is that the sheer arbitrariness of what happens to his protagonist in a way that some, well, 19th century horror authors, usually there was some reason for what happened to the protagonist. In this one, there basically isn't. There's a man, I believe this is in about 1830 or so, Mm -hmm. who decides, oh, also this is being narrated to us in a frame story, although the nature of the frame story doesn't become apparent until the end. But there's a man who has decided he's going to write a travel guide to Sweden. And there's a, a... somewhat amusing Jamesy and like side project or side thing where he just gives you a very brief kind of potted history of the this type of travel guide and it's kind of incredible because it should be super boring but he's a good enough author that it isn't and so anyways this man goes to Sweden it's the kind of travelogue where you're like reviewing hotels but also writing down curious bits of lore and it becomes apprised of the that the part of Sweden he is going to has a very fine manor house and that one of the occupants of this manor house was a very sinister nobleman called Count Magnus, who apparently put down a peasant revolt quite savagely. And he becomes fascinated with this figure, so he begins to make some inquiries and discovers a lot of sinister local legends about him, and also that the man was probably... He calls him an alchemist, but it appears to actually be like Satanism. 
Um, And while he's exploring this, he makes, he doesn't like do any magic or anything. He doesn't even visit the man's tomb until supernatural things start to happen. But um, he begins to have a, the fascination leads him to go to the man's tomb and he discovers that one of the locks on it has already fallen off. And you've sort of heard the sound of it earlier. And over the course of the story, he researches Magnus more and more and hears more and more sinister legends while more and more of the locks fall off the sarcophagus that contains Count Magnus until eventually the whole th- the all of the locks are removed. The man runs away, but Count Magnus apparently pursues, accompanied by some kind of demon familiar he picked up. Well, uh, I guess it's implied that he made a kind of pilgrimage to an accursed city in the mil- Middle East, I think. And yeah. um, then the man dies in a horrible way in a... A hotel, and the way he dies is so horrible that every no one ever goes into that hotel again. And it turns <laughs> out that the way we have acquired this is that the narrator inherited, I believe, the hotel or house or whatever, and the man's papers were just hidden in a drawer there because the way he died was so terrifying that nobody even bothered like looking through the furnishings. And uh, that's about it. It's completely <laughs> arbitrary. It's the man does nothing. Uh, to invite his fate other than go talk to some people and be like, how about that Count Magnus? Huh? What's the deal there? He doesn't even seem to be particularly like slandering Count Magnus. It's very strange. The other thing that is interesting to me about this story is that it's not gory, of course, but it is comparatively gory. There are is a description of a face without a, or a corpse without a face that I was legitimately yeah. surprised to find in a story of this vintage. And... um. The other thing I wanted to note is this has in common with a lot of 19th century horror that will later be lost in this kind of supernatural fiction, that the threat is fairly constrained. There's no hint that, like, Magnus is going to be the end of the world or anything. It's just, like, for some reason he's really angry at this one guy and he's going to kill him. Mm -hmm. And after he's died, it's sort of implied that the world goes back to the way it was. So it's still a downer ending, but it's a constrained downer ending, you know? Yeah, that makes sense. You know, the other thing that, that I was sort of fascinated by in this one, and also by several other M.R. James stories, there, there's this way that M.R. James keeps reading scholarship as ghost hunting and ghost hunting as scholarship. Like, it, it comes up in so many of his stories, and, you know, no surprise, he was a scholar. But when you're digging back through the past, it's not uncommon to find unsavory stuff. And so there are other stories of his that really do sort of involve the the tripping into the legendary or the spooky or the spectacular or just the ghostly. And the, like the, the other one I'm thinking is Whistle and I'll Come to You, My Lad, which is a, a sort of similar story where uh, a scholar goes to relax by playing golf and finds an ancient Roman whistle that he uses to... Um, accidentally summon this ghost which comes to haunt him. And that, then, yeah. I would urge people to check that story out. It is weirdly pretty funny, but also it has a ghost that is so silly you can't believe James made it scary. Yes. Yeah, and that's that's all we should say at this point. But um, that's, a, that's, that's sort of like a, a theme, scholarship and ghost hunting, that sort of seems to still run throughout. I mean, look at Ghostbusters and uh, Dan Aykroyd's character in Ghostbusters, this kind of like, I guess, scholarly nerd who's heavily invested in the the sort of history of the supernatural or the esoteric or the occult. 
Um, you know, it's, it's this really sort of fascinating thing. And I would agree with you that James really is legitimately scary. I mean, it's not that, you know, I guess, jump out of your seat, you know, blood and guts, really sort of, um, gruesome stuff that you get with something like Clive Barker, but it's, it's unnerving. It's legitimately unnerving. I was listening to a bunch of James stories, Count Magnus included on my, my drive to school recently. And it, it really was, it's unnerving. Like I pull into the parking lot and I'm just sitting there staring out the window, looking at the rain going, ah, I wonder if I'll make it to my classroom. Yeah. And this one in particular, the recount, there's a point where an innkeeper recounts a legend of what Count Magnus did to some hunters that like, I mean, I was listening to it while I was shopping at Costco and I'm still like, wow, that's pretty freaky while I'm in a crowd of people in a very noisy yeah. environment. And if it's something oh. can scare you in the, under those conditions, it can scare you anywhere. Uh, the other thing, so it's not just that like scholarship is ghost hunting; it's like all of academia. He has a story yeah. called "Casting the Runes," where the inciting incident is that literally a man gives a bad book review to a history of the, I believe, the occult or black magic, and the person who wrote it becomes so incensed that they use their knowledge of black magic to curse him. <laughs> That actually doesn't sound too far off from modern scholarship. Um, that, that makes some sense. All right, cool. So this was one I had a whole lot of fun with. Um, cool, 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 cool. So let's move on to oh, the next uh, one. One other oh, thing. Yeah. So I've already sort of mentioned them, but if you really like Mr. James, um, obviously just read more Mr. James. There's a fair amount of it. But if you're you really want to get into this 19th century horror, the other good authors to check out. Uh, on the Anglo side of things are Algernon Blackwood, who was a Canadian author who was primarily obsessed with sort of the horror of the wilderness, but also mm-hmm. wrote uh, some supernatural detective novels and straight ghost stories and so on. And The Willows, which H.P. Lovecraft at least regarded as the finest uh, horror story ever written in English. Uh, mm-hmm. Joseph Sheridan Le Fanu, who James loved and who was... Uh, just writes exceptionally sort of nasty and random ghost stories. And then Arthur Machen, or Machen, I'm not sure how you would pronounce it because it's Welsh. I'm inclined to give it the German, who wrote a bunch of horror stories about um, sort of folk magic and the survival of in sort of elder races in uh, Wales. And among other things, will later get picked up by Robert E. Howard for the protagon- or the antagonists in Worms of the Earth. <laughs> cool yeah all right so like uh, i like i said a treasure trove of information yeah (laughs) that gets us to clark ashton smith and the charnel god and this one is particularly near and dear to your heart no yeah this uh uh, i read i listened to this on an audiobook like in ninth grade and for reasons i can't really explain it just got its claws in me and i love the shit out of this story uh (laughs) To the point where the email address that I created for myself and that it, I am stuck with forever because there's too many accounts tied to it is from a character in the story. <laughs> so, all right, walk us through this one. Who was Smith and what is this? This was like, out of everything we read, this was probably the strangest. And, I mean, that's that's considering that we read one about a giant monster who comes to life. Yes. Um... <laughs> That's yeah. Rawhead Rex by Clive Barker, jumping ahead. There's yeah. a giant monster who's essentially a phallus. But um, Clark Ashton Smith's Charnel God is really unnerving, really bizarre, and it sort of occupies that strange place between horror and fantasy, right? Yeah, so um, Clark Ashton Smith, uh, 
I don't have his biography in front of me. He was a weird horror. He was a very acclaimed poet in, I believe, the 1920s or 1930s who started writing weird fiction to make ends meet. He actually uh, lived a good deal longer than most of the other pulp authors. I still think, I think he was still bumping around in the 50s, which mm. uh, outlived Lovecraft and Robert E. Howard, at least. Um, mm. His short stories are sort of divided up into three settings. Hyperborea, which is a setting he shares with Robert E. Howard. Uh, Avignon, which is a kind of place in medieval France where there's just a ton of witches and devil worshippers running around. It's like a weird, almost alternate history Europe where magic is real, but the church just doesn't like it. And then (laughs) Zothique, which is where this one is set. And Zothique is the weirdest of his settings, probably. Uh, It's like millions and millions of years in the future, on the last continent that there will ever be, when the earth is dying. Magic has returned, but it is wielded almost exclusively by evil people, mostly necromancers, but also demonologists and like things from outside. There's a ton of monsters running around. The world is like, it's sort of like if you made a world out of gothic literature is what Sothik is. It's, gotcha. And it, it, it's, it's a kind of weirdly important, uh, a little bit because it inf- uh, flected Jack. It's almost verbatim Jack Vance's Dying Earth, except Jack Vance's Dying Earth is in a sinister, which in turn influenced Gene Wolfe's Book of the New Sun. But mm. um, the I guess why this is here is um, I might mangle the history on this a little bit, but in the like 20s through, I believe, the 40s, there was an explosion of magazines called pulp magazines, very cheaply printed, where you know, every month or every week or whatever the release cycle was. You could go down to the newsstand, you could pay like a nickel, you'd get like a surprisingly thick magazine just chock full of short stories. There was enorm- an enormous market for these things, and it led to this boom in horror generation because there was just so many places you could put your product. And the most important of these magazines for horror fiction is this play- thing called Weird Tales. I believe it was edited by Uger Gernsback, but I might be wrong about that. And out of Weird Tales, we get... Uh, what are called the big three, who are in some way or another the most important horror authors in um, the 20th century almost. You get Lovecraft, you get who, you know, again, we'll talk about yeah. <laughs> I've got a Lovecraft story in here, and you guys also have a whole episode on him. You've yeah, got yeah. Robert E. Howard, who invented Conan, Bran McMorn, Solomon Kane, a whole bunch of characters. And he's not quite as well known as he was, but he's still, he invented sort of, heroic fantasy and is a towering figure and then finally you've got clark ashton smith who was i mean he's not weirder than lovecraft i don't think but he was a weirdo frustrated poet all this stuff and um so i picked this story because i knew i wanted to show do a pulp to show you guys just how weird the genre (laughs) and i got fucking weird yeah and i wanted to um do one from clark ashton smith because, you know, Robert E. Howard and H.P. Lovecraft, definitely you've heard of Lovecraft if you're at all interested in horror. And there's a pretty good chance you've bumped into Robert E. Howard if you care about fantasy or horror. But Clark Ashton Smith is largely forgotten, which I think is a mm. shame. And I picked this one in particular partially because it's so near and dear to me, but partially because it is on its face demented. Because yeah. it's a Poe homage set millions of years in the future in a world where magic is real. <laughs> And there's just evil necromancers and stuff running around. And it's also got this, like, devil god in it, except the devil god kind of turns out to be just a chill dude, which is, which is a weird <laughs> twist to put on that. Yeah, so it's this traveler who is in this bizarre city. Um, uh, Zulbasair, for those yeah, keeping with, score at home. 
<laughs> with his wife. And his wife apparently has some disorder where she will go into these trance-like comas. It's called Edgar Allan Poe disease. Yes, exactly. (laughs) And so uh, anyone who dies in the city automatically is taken to the charnel god who devours the corpse. And nobody quite knows what his followers do, but it's insinuated that perhaps there's necrophilia involved, perhaps there's cannibalism involved. Perhaps through these horrible processes, they are turned into, like the corpse is turned into one of the followers. It's it's really sort of wide open. So uh, this oh, man's uh, wife, a cool, a yeah. cool thing about the followers, because they have gazed upon Holy Mordigian, no man is allowed to gaze on them. So they wear weird masks and completely shroud themselves in robes. But yeah, um, the, the, the thing about the story is that... Uh, Clark Ashton Smith had a similar sort of love of the adjective and the just piling of words upon each other that Lovecraft did. But because he was a poet uh, of some, like, who was good, he was a good deal better at it. So some of these descriptions of the priests are actually, like, crazy. Like the swift, swiftness of tigers and references to them clutching greasily at things and just... Oh, yeah, little... absolutely. Yeah. Anyway, sorry to... Like, no, no, no. Well, that gets that gets into this other thing. Like um, the this aspect of the pulps that I'm kind of curious about exploring, and I don't know, you know, I I didn't have time to do any any research on this, but I, I I'm I think there might be some out there. Like one of the strains and strands that went into modernism was aestheticism and the sort of fin de siècle, like the the um, you know into the era of the 1890s, that kind of purple prose and decadent aestheticism. That became a part of modernism, but that also gets connected back to the Gothic. And it was in um, The King in Yellow, which we didn't read for this, but which you did sort of suggest that I read. I cyberbullied Claude viciously until he read some 19th century decadent literature, because that's the kind of friend I am. Yeah, no, it was it was wonderful, and uh, and we're going to cycle back to the King in Yellow because Pro Patria by Nadia Balkin is a sort of riff on that. But um, the King in Yellow is in that decadent vein with some of that purple prose, and you can also sort of see it floating through Clark Ashton Smith. I, I have this sneaking suspicion that the fantasy decadent aestheticist literature gets filtered into the horror genre through the pulps. And I kind of want to see where that strand goes. Uh, but anyway, that's that's what I kept seeing in Clark Ashton Smith. That's why I found uh, this story in particular so jarring and fascinating and weird. So this this um, this protagonist, his wife has been taken by the followers of the Charnel God, and it's all about his quest to sort of get her back. He he sort of follows them to wherever the temple may be and sort of waits his turn to try to go in and steal her back. But at the same time, there's this evil sorcerer who has poisoned uh, the most beautiful girl in the city in order to strike a deal with the followers of the Charnel God to sort of sneak in and steal her body oh, and no, no, try to... That's, yeah. a, that's a twist, actually. He didn't. The, the, he has a deal with them where he just murders people, and they'll let in exchange for that, they'll let him do necromantic experiments, but he is expressly forbidden from ever taking anyone out of the temple. Oh, gotcha. Right. Sorry, I'm getting my details mixed up. So uh, also, that I was legitimate. Yeah. Like I'd remembered this story as being a lot more the followers of Mordigian and Mordigian himself are just like you know they've got this weird thing going on, but they're basically cool. And I was very disappointed to discover that Mordigian's priests are crooked. Do better, Mordigian's priests. 
you can't dupe the god, but the priests can be kind of sketchy. So uh, anyway, he he goes in there and he finds his wife and he's trying to get her out. And the god awakens and the priests sort of find all this stuff. And essentially the evil sorcerer, the evil necromancer who is sort of crooked and working with the crooked priest, he's punished. But they let this traveler with his, his wife who's not dead, they let him go because at the end of the day, the god is fair. She's not dead. Just, you know, you're cool. Let's go. Yeah. You're good. Uh, oh, and also it turns out that Mordidian's priests, as you might have guessed from the fact that no one's allowed to look at them, aren't actually human. They're ghouls. Uh, apparently, although I'm not sure about the timeline on this, they sound very similar to the H.P. Lovecraft ghouls from Pickman's model and have nothing mm-hmm. in common whatsoever aside from a fondness for dead flesh with the ghoul of Arabian mythology. This will later right. lead people to just sort of drag Mordidian into the Cthulhu mythos, even though he really doesn't have any place there because... The whole point of the Cthulhu mythos is that Cthulhu is going to come back and destroy the world, which is incompatible with Zothique being around millions of years later. There you go. Unless Cthulhu is just like really slow. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> maybe. He, well, he got hit by a boat, so he had to sleep for several million years. It's fine. Happens to the best of us. Well, maybe he's just sort of like waiting his turn. It's sort of like entropy is Cthulhu. Who knows? Yeah. Um, but anyway, I, I thought this was a compelling story. Like like I sort of said, just for that sort of, if you're into aestheticist decadence, which I am, uh, this is a cool one to check out because it sort of takes the the underlying gothicism and makes it overt, but still has that really wonderful, chewy purple prose. You know, it's it's kind of lovely in its own <laughs> grotesque way. Yeah, I this one, like I said, near and dear to my heart. I can't quite explain why I love it so much. Uh, re-listening to it, I'm kind of, you know, I'm like half loving the pros and half like, you know, you could probably cut about 80% of this. But uh, then it wouldn't be Clark Ashton Smith, so. Exactly. And there's this other thing that, that was sort of fascinating about it. And we were sort of chatting about this extraneously. Like, why set it in such a fantastic place in such a fantastic scheme and it sort of allows you to to sort of open the doors and sort of find this freedom within these parameters so you can play in in sort of areas of i guess the exotic or what have you but you're not necessarily tied to it and you can shift and jump and do all kinds of things to make things look somewhat familiar but also alien and it kind of like throws you off in this fantastic way yeah i was kind of i think howard at least the reason he invented hyperborea was essentially that he didn't want to do research but on the (laughs) other hand i mean if you're going to just make up a city and be like yeah they're ruled over by a weird corpse eating god you know uh, I don't know how much research he would have to do. I kind of wonder if part of it is just that Clark Ashton Smith had kind of invented his own genre. So he's like, well, obviously I'm going to set everything in it because I, I, I thought of this thing that no one else did. Why shouldn't I? Yeah. So anyway, I, I, that, was, that was like a fun little gem back there. And uh, I, I really had a lot of fun with that. It's, gro- it's gruesome. It's grotesque. And, and it's chewy. But it's, it's fun to get through. Yeah, I was now, legitimately surprised okay. by how hard it went. Among other things, they don't quite say that the necromancer is going to do necrophilia. But it is like there is nothing else he could possibly be do- planning to do with the beautiful woman's corpse that he's reanimated and keeps saying she's going to be his bride forever. <laughs> There you go. Yeah. All right. Now, Theodore Sturgeon's bright segment oh, wait, was a bummer. One, one oh, go ahead. Thi- so, also, if you're if you're like, I want to do more Clark, I want to explore the pulps. Obviously, 
Robert E. Howard, H.P. Lovecraft, if you're okay, if you can make your peace with the fact that he was racist, Clark Ashton Smith. And aside from that, I really like Robert Block, and mm-hmm. he's the man who wrote Psycho, but he wrote some incredibly fine uh, short story or horror short stories. And then if you're cool going a little bit later, Richard Matheson is incredible. He's um, he wrote I Am Legend and also oh, Nightmare no, at no, 20,000 no. Feet, the thing that the classic Twilight Zone is episode is based on but he's got a lot of short fiction as well that goes real hard so cool 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 cool. yeah anyways bright segment yeah it's it, all right yeah depressing as shit <laughs> it was a bummer <laughs> but a fascinating bummer all right so walk us through this one and tell us why this one's here okay so uh i don't have much background on theodore sturgeon i should have looked him up he was a science fiction and fantasy writer uh his other like big horror stories are Killdozer and I believe it's called It. Uh, Killdozer is about a bulldozer that gets possessed by an alien and I think it's mostly remembered because it's okay, it's written fairly well, but mostly it's just, it's called Killdozer. How could it not trickle down through the ages, you know? And um, then It, assuming I've got the name right, is a, sort of the first killer plant monster thing, an inspired swamp thing and um, whatever the Marvel equivalent of swamp thing is. Uh, and but this is here mostly because um, well two reasons first like most of the other like genres you care to investigate uh, horror started growing up through the 50s and 60s people started caring more about psychological realism I'm sure if you dig through the pulps there's still people who are like actually trying to have their characters have motivations but it becomes more of a concern and this is an excellent example of that but also I wanted this here because one of the things that sort of I dislike most about horror is that the genre as a whole has treated the mentally ill like incredibly incredibly shabbily just Mm -hmm. awfully so many short stories you read them and madness is either this weird thing you got because you read the wrong book or looked at Cthulhu or whatever which that isn't that's not how it works but that isn't like offensive it's just sort of reducing you know mental illness to a, a prop Although then we've got some short stories later where that just happens. Right, right. Uh, Or they just make the mentally ill either innocent victims or, you know, just essentially mindless killing machines. The slasher genre in particular is like that. And for so long you could just be like, well, he was in a mental hospital. So, of course, he, you know, did this or that or whatever. And I didn't want to, like, shy away from that entirely. But I did want to sort of show that there's another way you could do it, essentially. So... Um, with spoilers, the broad outline of this is that there is a man with a severe mental illness who finds a a wounded woman, takes her back to his apartment, imprisons her, and then when she tries to escape, he kills her. And that, you know, that's also the plot of, like, I'm sure a bunch of torture porn and all this stuff. But in Sturgeon's hands, it turns into, like, literally, like, the dictionary definition of a tragedy. Because he has so much empathy for the main character. And it Mm. is so sad and so upsetting. And it couldn't work at all if the main character was just malevolent. You're, it's... It's a limited third person focused almost entirely on him. And by the end, you really know what makes this man tick and why the story can't end any other way. And you feel for him and you kind of, I mean, you've got affection for him and you're just so sad about what happens. Yeah. It's, I guess, like you said, the sort of psychological exploration and what's, what's so affecting about the story is, this man in his own way 
cares for the woman that he finds. It's it's kind of like it's kind of like misery, like Stephen King's misery, but better because it doesn't have that sort of stupid pat motivation to it. Like you see through this character's eyes and he is working very hard to take care of this woman in the way that he believes one must take care of another human being. But she's also sort of like a pet. Well, it's not even that she's a pet. It's that she's like, she becomes his reason for existing. Yes, exactly. We we always talk about like, that's in your marriage vows or whatever, but that's actually an enormously unhealthy way to live, you know? Yeah. Service to others is incredibly noble, and that could be your reason, but centering it on a single person who may not like want anything to do with you is unhealthy. So incredibly yeah. so. And so that's what's that's what's so heartbreaking about the story is that you feel like Sturgeon does a great job of making us understand and in some ways empathize with this guy because you feel kind of what he feels for her or what he gets out of feeling something for her. And it's it's just yeah, like you said, there's no other way it could end. Like but you we, want we understand to, that by the end. You want it yeah. to end some other way so badly. Like when I was listening to this for, I knew how it was going to end because I remembered it when I read it in high school. And how could you how could you forget it? Frankly, right. And I, I was like, you know, I was walking down the street, Albuquerque Street, at like four o'clock in the morning, literally like almost in tears, being like, dude, just let her go and go get a dog. That's all you got to do. This could end so different. And I knew, it, you know, like shouting at a horror movie or something. And I knew it didn't do anything, but still, that's what I wanted so bad. Well, I, that's also what you said is that all of these stories could have ended differently if somebody would just, you know, go get a dog. Yeah. But uh, I guess well, let's go into a summary a little bit more because my yeah. mine, although accurate, is entirely misleading. So there is a man. I don't believe we get a name on him. He has some kind of mental illness. It's either autism or developmental delay. I think it's probably right. a developmental delay. Obviously, you know, this was in the 1950s. So it's not like there was that much sort of diagnosis and probably right. they would have been lumped together anyways. Um, and he's walking. He works as a janitor. He's intensely unhappy. Well, I don't even know if he's unhappy. He, you don't really know what his mental state is. Uh, he, his entire life, he's sort of being told that no one wants him. He tried to join the, his mother. He left, and his mother just sort of said, "Who needs you?" When he left right. home, he tried to join the army and was rejected. And he's found work as a janitor and has apparently worked there for sixteen years. But nobody, even in his plant, really knows him. And he's walking down the street, and he finds a woman who has been thrown to the pavement. Uh, she's been stabbed and also has uh, some kind of head injury from hitting her head. Uh, two slashes. He takes her into his small apartment. It's apparently a studio. And he... Uh, I'm, uh, there's this passage I want to read. It comes later oh, in the God. story. but um, Not the surgery. Not the surgery. No, no, no. But they're, they're t- it's Sturgeon describing this hands. It, um, the hands ha- were the only thing that cared for him, the only thing that could provide for him. They were hands that had never learned their limitations because he had never thought to limit them. Because they did anything or everything, they could do anything. He's like low-key a genius with his hands. And so yeah. he... Even though he's severely, like, there's something, he's, you know, developmental delay probably. 
um, he somehow manages to do surgery on her successfully, including fishing a knife out of her wound, repairing an artery, all of this. And then he calls in sick to work and his bosses laugh at him. And he spends the next several weeks nursing her back to health. Um, and this gives him purpose in his life. And she grad, she's lost her ability to speak, so she puts up with this for far longer, but he won't let her leave. He showers her with presence and affection. Whenever she tries to repay him with uh, a cooked breakfast or with sex, he responds very negatively because that's not their relationship. Their relationship is him serving her. It's not right for her to serve him. And yeah. then she gets her ability to speak back. She starts explaining how she came into her situation. It doesn't really matter. She's trying. She's ve- she's quite kind to him. Is the other thing that makes this sad. If she were just being a jerk to him, it would be easier. But she legitimately cares for him. She has to leave town because the people who stabbed her are still out there. But she offers to write him, and there's no hard feelings or anything. Uh, but she's going to leave, and then he realizes that she's going to leave. And because it, it's called bright segment, because this is the one bright segment in his life. He can't handle it, so he smashes her head with a flat iron to try to make her stay. But, of course, it isn't. I mean, the dude's incredible, but he's not going to be able to fix that. So he's just killed the person he cares for. And it's it's fucking devastating. It's, yeah. Yeah, it's... in. If this was a... Like, you could almost see it being a Tales from the Crypt episode... But if it was, they would find some way to sort of like make it moralistic or something like that. Like you would have to find some way to hate the woman. Yeah. And I think that's what Sturgeon does that's so heartbreaking is that she's she's not a like she has done things that are maybe not great, but she's not a bad person and she she really doesn't treat him poorly. She doesn't she just, seem to condescend to him, even with <clears> it. Like, she's explaining in full-on, like, you know, adult or whatever, yeah. not to condescend to the man, language, about her situation. Yeah. She's not going it, like, I have to leave now. I'll come back. You know, any of that shit. She respects yeah. him. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. This all one, right. I think of all of the ones we read, there there are ones that are scarier. There are ones that were more off-putting. This is the one I had the biggest emotional reaction to, even if the reaction is just like, you know, uh, yeah, it's really good though. You can't. It's incredible. the The other uh, thing that I picked yeah. up on, at least, is that this story, it's not written as you know, like um, activist fiction, but there is a sort of I sensed a kind of barely contained fury in some of the passages at the fact that people like this are treated this way, that we can't find, you know, a place for them or give them a little dignity. Yeah, I, I agree. There, there were sort of slivers of those because if there are bad guys and well, uh, all right, he's, he does horrible things and yet we're meant to empathize with them. The people that we're not meant to empathize with are the people who treat him poorly. Yeah, and treat him poorly because of whatever disability he has. Yeah, right? I'm, I'm um, not sure that this would pass muster if you showed it to a you know a disability rights activist today. But it no. is remarkable for, for like, the 50s. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, so let's turn to something that's a whole lot more fun. Shirley Jackson's The Witch. Yeah, which isn't what it sounds like. So, um, uh, well, one the, thing. So, I don't have yeah. any recommendations for the bright segment, uh, partially because I don't think I've ever read it. The only other, 
short story I've ever, ever read that bummed me out this much was called Iona Moon, and I can't remember the author, and I didn't care to look it up. But just go read more Theodore Sturgeon. I don't think he ever wrote anything quite in this vein again, but he's a, mm. he's a hell of an author. Well, I have to read Killdozer now. Yeah, you do, because it's called Killdozer. <laughs> That's how he gets Killdozer. you. <laughs> All right, so uh, Shirley Jackson's The Witch is what you called mundane horror or horror of the mundane, and it's it's brilliant. I'd read it before, and then going back and rereading it was so much fun because it's it's a lady and her two kids. This was a situation that I can absolutely empathize with because I've done this. Um, She has one older uh, older child, a, a boy and a younger baby and they're on a train ride and it's a long train ride and the boy is getting antsy and kind of obnoxious and he can't sit still and then this older gentleman sort of walks into the car and sits down beside them and seems to be kind of impish and winking and in this laughing sort of silly impish way describes to the boy how he strangled his sister and then gets up and laughs and walks off well it's 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 the man at least has the affect of there's ambiguity in the story but the affect is the death is so over the top that it's intended to be just sort of a weird joke that you might tell a young boy to entertain him it's not like he's you know and then i saw the life leave her eyes and it's the hardest i've ever fucking been you know it's more no no i I strangled her and then i set her on fire and hit her with a stick and fed her to a bear you know it's like and do you know what i did next can you guess what i did next i hit her on the head with a stick it's got that kind of all right who I pictured as the old man, like a perfect rendition of this would be um, Patrick Stewart in his like silliest, most impish mode, right? You know, when he's got that kind of um, silliness going on with him, he would be perfect if you were making a movie version of this because you can't tell if this, it just starts to bend into the sinister in this way where you can't quite read what exactly is going on the mom picks up that something is not quite right here that this is a joke that's going further than it should and it's unnerving and she gets the guy to leave and the kid doesn't quite pick up on it and is kind of like giggling along with it and it's it's that's what's so disturbing right yeah it it's it's funny it's weird it's quirky and it's it's off-putting and it's just such a fun, lovely little read. I, I loved this one. <laughs> yeah, this this has the whole like Shirley Jackson ambiguity that a lot of her like non lottery, non haunting of Hill House stuff did. Where this could yeah. just be a dude coming in trying to entertain a kid and misjudging the situation, or this could be like literally the devil like corrupting this kid and being like, you know what's pretty cool? Torturing people. You should look into yeah. that. You know. <laughs> and it's also kind of the least amount of store like. Things you can have happen in a story and still have it count as a horror story, which is kind of why I picked it a little. Oh yeah, it's it's incredibly short. It's incredibly incredibly brief. You just like go right in and right out. It's just kind of like, uh, I mean, it's almost an anecdote, and it, it's it's really fun because of that. I you can't elaborate on this because it, it it's all right. I think we were talking in the chat that this is so much like things that have happened in my life i've had encounters like these that were sort of like what is this it's brief little weird uh talk with somebody about something that just 
kind of goes wrong you know it's there's something in the undertone that's just odd like um i uh wait, all right so sorry the, we're rambly and digressive tonight uh, sorry when... dan who is gonna have to edit this but on the other hand it's <laughs> your fault for not being here and keeping us on track <laughs> but um when i was in high school i did community theater uh out at berkeley plantation uh which was about um an hour and a half from where i lived it's this old plantation like way out in the middle of nowhere on the james river and uh the these guys had had sort of done this fantastic job of building a stage they took like two trailers and covered it with this foam and painted it like rocks and it was this outdoor stage that looked right out on the river and so you could sit there and watch a show um as the sun went down and it's beautiful on the water and you know they put on like weird historical stuff and then at one point they were putting on shakespeare and so i was sort of like an extra in macbeth and I remember one night I, I drove and my buddy, <clears throat> who was like a year younger than me, he was uh, also in drama. And so we were doing this together. And so we drove an hour and a half out there on a Friday night and we would get out early, to, like we would get out there early to help set up the stage and everything like that. But we were way early that time and nobody else was around. And we we're in the empty parking lot, which was just like this grass field that they would mow every week. And there's one other car and there are these two dudes sitting in it. And so uh, we just get out of our car and we're sitting there and we wave and say, hey, how's it going? Are you here for the show? And they're like, what show? And they're like, uh, yeah, we're, we're performing Macbeth out here. And these guys, they were kind of rednecky looking. And one of them looks up and goes, oh, Macbeth, I love that one. It's filled with blood. Jesus. <laughs> All right, dude, well, we're going to get over to the set. We're going to start. You're like, hey, are these uh, people more learned than I think, and I'm an asshole for making assumptions, or is this guy, uh, uh, am I about to I get, don't... like, Texas Chainsaw Massacred? It it was one of those weird altercations where you're like, I don't know where this is. You're like, yeah, I love that play, man. That's great. All right, cool. You guys have a good time. Where can we buy tickets? I'm like, uh, over at that stand up in the back. Hey, man, maybe we'll see you there. It's like, okay, where is this going? What is going on? And then I never saw those dudes again. And 20 minutes later, the rest of the, the cast showed up and we put on a show and all this other stuff. So it, it was just one of those weird things. Maybe somebody was making a joke. Maybe somebody had some sinister intent. Maybe somebody, you don't know how to read the situation. And that's what um, The Witch really reminded me of. Just those weird situations where you're like, okay, my gut is telling me that something is quite is not quite right, but what exactly? Though now that I lived in New York for like ten years, uh, <laughs> anytime my gut is saying anything, I'm like, all right, we go now. I don't need to be here for this. Let's let's go home. <laughs> I have less compulsion about sticking around and and out of um, I guess embarrassment seeing where this is going to go. But anyway. That's The Witch. I would heartily recommend this story because it was I'm, so much fun. If nothing else, it's the audiobook of it is literally eight minutes. I can't imagine yeah. it runs more than three pages. <laughs> Go check that shit out, man. Whatever. All man. right. So walk us through Octavia Butler's Bloodchild. Okay. So the thing I wanted to sort of show was that horror 
because it doesn't it's doesn't have a set like specific set of genre tropes you have to include or respond to it can pair unusually well with other genres and i wanted to get a science fiction horror story because i'd already done a fantasy one so i was originally mm. going to do like the autopsy by michael shea or thing but from another world by joseph campbell but then i was looking over my list and i'm like you know it's being entirely like white people and mostly dudes so what if i went in and tried to get a little variety uh yeah. so i went in and started digging through my collection or um my you know anthologies and i remembered this which i had read in high school and i don't think i quite got it but i remembered being like weirded out by it so i'm like let's give this a whirl um and i was right this was a good thing to give a whirl to uh yeah it's science fiction well it's weird because i'm not even sure that octavia butler would actually call this a um horror story i was listening to i listened to it in an audiobook for of like blood child and other stories and it had an afterward by her where it sort of seemed like she might have almost been talking about a different story but on the other hand i'm not going to go in and be like octavia butler you don't understand the story you wrote and i read once and kind of maybe missed some stuff on it is weird how different her take on this was than it what mine was though mm-hmm. uh, so anyways uh this is set on an alien world uh, far in the future, there are humans living there who arrived there fleeing some kind of persecution or pogrom or extermination on Earth. Uh, and the planet was inhabited by these uh, weird, they're never fully described, but apparently they're insectile aliens called the Tlek. They have uh, segmented bodies and a great many limbs, So I pi- and a stinger, so I pictured a centipede. Uh, yeah. The Tlek were sort of apparently slowly going extinct because the way their reproduction works is they have to implant their eggs into a living thing and then the eggs, you know, hatch and eat the person from, or the thing from the inside. And it was, uh, the animals that they were using for that stopped being able to produce very many healthy click. So when the humans arrived, they never explained how this happened, but the click discovered that they were actually incredibly good hosts for their young. And they sort of negotiated it. The humans were initially kept in a kind of slave state, apparently, where they just keep them in pens. Uh, the click have stingers that can narcotize a human, so they just sting the hell out of the humans in the pen. Uh, they'd get an equal mix of genders, so the humans would, like, you know, continue to make more humans. And then they just implant their eggs in them. But when we joined the story, it's sort of settled more on something along the lines of the Native, Amer- a Native American reservation, almost. I think they actually do call it a, reserva- or a reserve, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, a yeah, preserve, yeah. preserve, um, preserve. Yeah, and um, it's it's much it's it's closer to symbiosis than outright parasitism. Uh, the humans are allowed a fair amount of liberty in their preserve, but uh, <clears throat> Tlek, who get are given the privilege, will go in there and sort of select a human family. They'll join the human family, although it's unclear if the humans actually have a choice in this. Become kind of a member, pick a member of it, and implant their eggs. And when the eggs hatch there's a very very short window of time where they can be removed before they poison the human and eat them um and it's apparently an incredibly painful process and our narrator is a young boy who has been raised since uh infancy with the idea that he's going to become the uh sort of i guess brood carrier pregnant whatever you want to call it to an alien named tigatoy who runs the preserve um Mm -hmm. and but then over the course of the story he sees a a birth birth in quotation marks that goes wrong and his um Tigatoy has to do an emergency surgery and the human almost dies and almost goes insane from or something from pain i guess not mad but it, whatever happens yeah. to you 
is permanently, almost permanently damaged by the pain. So the narrator becomes a good deal more um, ambivalent about the process and discovers some unpleasant family dynamics around it. And eventually decides to go through with it anyways after regaining a little bit of power from Tigatoy by insisting that they be allowed to, he be allowed to keep his gun or a gun that his family has that is technically illegal and offers some suggestions on improving the situation. Uh, mm-hmm. And there's this weird sort of sick parasitism to the whole thing where Tigatoy plays a lot like an abuser, abusive father well, or mother, I guess. It played a little yeah. paternal because, you know, traditionally the abusive father is the one who has all the power and dominates people through force, which is kind of what Tigatoy does. But on the other hand, it's like a weird... Uh, centipede alien so i probably shouldn't be projecting like my gender (laughs) stuff on it um and uh that's it it's kind of a crap sack uh, world narrative i think where you spend a fair amount of time discovering just sort of not how bad not like 1984 bad but how weird and the situation is there's no real suggestion that it could ever they the humans could ever stop doing this and although the talik sort of the talik treat the humans like a about halfway between a beast of like a, a farm animal and a dog, essentially, you know, mm, they've got a little yeah. bit of affection for them, but at the end of the day, the click come first and it's just, it's a bad situation and it doesn't seem like they're ever going to get out of it. Yeah. So it was a bummer. Yeah. Very complicated story. And then I read the afterwards and Octavia Butler is first like, this isn't about slavery. And I'm like, okay. I mean, it sort of seems like it was, but I will take, I obviously I'm going to take your word for it. And yeah. Yeah, and then she explains that um, first th- this was mostly her trying to figure out exactly what the world, how humanity, like interacting with an alien species, might go, and what weird things we might have to trade to them. Which right. that is unquestionably true. Although she seems way less ambivalent in the afterwards than she does in the story, mm-hmm. and um, then she also notes that this story was primarily inspired by her reading about bot flies and getting freaked out and trying to work through it, which means that this, uh, so there is a Genji Ito short story, uh, comic, I forget the name where mm-hmm. there like a weird undead shark comes up on the land and it turns into an apocalyptic threat. And someone asked him where he got the idea. And he said, well, sharks are pretty scary. And I thought they'd be scarier <laughs> if I came up on the, if they came up on the land. So I wrote this and I'm like, it's, it's sort of like, th- th- it's the same thing. Just like, how'd you get there from there, man? I mean, I'm not going to question you cause you're an amazing creative and I'm yeah. not, but Man, imagine seeing a bot fly and then go writing a story about an abusive alien manipulating a young boy into burying her children. Well, I think that's what was so unnerving about this story is that as... Okay, so with Clark Ashton Smith, the setting and the situation is is very alien. It's very fantastic. It's really far out. And you can latch on to certain things and there's like this weird logic to it and the sort of doom of the thing. Um, but I think where Butler takes it is creates a situation where the 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 context is so far out, right? It's an alien world. It's all this other stuff. But you can easily recognize the abusive relationship and the sort of this way that she's thinking through social interactions and social engagements and negative social engagements and how parts of a culture will take from other parts of that culture. Uh, 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 groups of people will take from other groups of people and 
there's not much that can be done, as you said. It's it's like recognizable social and psychological abuses. And it leaves you in that state like, <clears throat> okay, now that I see it, what can you do? You know, it's that bleakness that I think sort of gets under your skin, right? Yeah. This one is a rough one. I, again, there, it's sort of the other ones, there's a way in for me kind of like, uh, mm-hmm. I know how to feel about this one, but this one, I think the ambivalence and ambiguity is the point because the, I mean, the Tlick are clearly using the humans, but on the other hand, the Tlick can also point to, and apparently this is true because the story says it wasn't, we took you in when you were going to be exterminated and this arrangement is largely beneficial for both of us. It's just, you're not an equal part in it and you know, occasionally one of you gets eaten by our grubs. Yeah. So, I, I mean, you could map it onto all kinds of social critique, right? And I think yeah. that's what, I guess, as a political allegory, if you want to take it as a political allegory, that's that's how it gains its power. It's sort of like X-Men. You can map it onto all kinds of social critiques, right? When you try to pin it down, it 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 proves too fluid and and it loses the 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 power of it but when it's open enough as as i think bloodchild is to to be mapped in so many different ways that's where it gets its power i guess it's the suggestiveness of several things that are really obviously glaringly wrong right in terms yeah. of social interaction um, <clears throat> well, on the other on the other hand, Clive Barker's Rawhead Rex is about a giant monster penis that is discovered in a small English town. Yeah, so uh, I, I have a little bit of a story on this one, actually. Uh, <laughs> so um, I, I first read this in tenth grade. I had read uh, the Midnight Meat Train in the Dark Descent, and I quite liked it. Uh, because it seemed it was so unlike all the other stuffy horror I'd been waiting through. It's just like, nah, nah, nah. What if a dude got disemboweled and then hung upside down in a subway train and like he was totally naked and you could sweet, see his swinging guts and penis whenever the train moved? And I'm like, oh, fuck yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> so I went and got Books of Blood volumes one through three. I read this story in there. I completely missed the subtext, which is weird because the subtext, this is one of those stories where the subtext and the text are kind of the same thing almost. Yeah. But I mostly just read it as this fucking awesome monster going on this fucking awesome (laughs) rampage and fucking the fuck out of stuff, you know? (laughs) And then um, I was enormously taken with Barker. I'll do some backstory on him in a minute. And I wanted to get the rest of the books of blood because I knew there were six volumes. Although in America, they were the other three are released under different names, not books of blood volumes four, five and six. And the only place I could find that had the whole thing was this very limited edition uh, that had been put out by someone or other. It's like one of those ones, only 200 signed by the author, all that shit. And it had photographs that Clive Barker had taken himself. So I got it on interlibrary loan. And then I discovered that the photographs in it were softcore gay erotica, which I'm cool with, but this was the mid 2000s. And, uh, you know, we're doing, everyone was doing their best, but it was still not a great time to be seen walking around with softcore gay erotica. So I'm sitting in my English class in, um, we had a free reading period, and I'm going through it, and I'm, you know, desperately trying to flip past the pictures that's in between the stories. But my English teacher, Ken Holmes, I'm still in contact with actually. He's looking over my shoulder. He's like, Lawrence, what are you reading? I'm like, it's an interlibrary loan. I didn't know it would have pictures. And it just kind of ambles off. And to this day, I still wonder if he thinks I ILL'd some porno because I couldn't like come out to my parents or something. 
Oh, God. So, anyways, Clive Barker, um, pretty famous. You probably know him from Hellraiser. Uh, excellent English, English horror author. Sort of bursts onto the sing, scene in the 1980s with these books of blood, which are collections of short stories. They're incredibly gory. They're often very funny. Like, some of them are laugh out loud. The dude loves a fucking pun, and he's amazing yes. at them. Yes. Um, and he's kind of one of the defining people of the 1980s and this movement called Splatterpunk, which is essentially uh, horror had kind of continued. You know, it's getting a little wilder, but it's still pretty stayed up through the 70s. At least we'll get it published. And then some authors in the early 80s are like, you know, horror, the movies are incredibly gory and rough. What if we started doing that in our stories? And they like really pour on the blood and the cruelty. And that's Splatterpunk. I think mm-hmm. Barker is one of the more sort of art. He's not like arty exactly, but he's got artistic aspirations, even if he's also like, you know, would it be cool if a monster fucking ate a kidney? Like just yeah. ripped it out of the corpse and like slurped it down like you slurped down a bounty. <laughs> That's pretty sweet, right? Yeah. Um, he, he's also like he combines horror and sex in very strange ways. There's uh, one, I think it's called Play the Living, where um, there's an undead zombie theater troupe who turn other people into zombies so that they continue to put on like plays forever. And there's one scene where a man discovers that his girlfriend has become a zombie because she's uh, giving him oral sex and is suddenly amazing at it because she no longer needs to breathe. A lot of stuff oh, like God. that. <laughs> Yeah, okay. uh, it's going to be fun to see if you could get thrown off the Agora Podcast Network for me saying stuff like that. Oh, no, I, I think we're okay so far. But yeah, I, I get your point, though, that Barker is pushing the envelope or, or trying to match what's going on cinematically. Like, you know, it, it really kind of surprised me that some of the earlier stuff wasn't as gory as the later stuff because like 60s 70s well i guess 70s 73 that's when we get texas chainsaw massacre and then you know from there it just gets gorier and gorier and gorier um why hadn't horror which technically okay it doesn't have the same kinds of limits and limitations that cinema would have why hadn't horror gotten grosser sooner? I'm not you know like, I mean? I, yeah, I'm not sure I've got enough of a background to give you a good answer on that. Although I think some yeah. of it might have just been like people were writing gross stuff, but having trouble getting it published in anywhere but zines. Gotcha. No, I mean, it's it's kind of a curious question. So anyway, I was, all right, I'd read Barker back in high school at some point because He's I was He's a very curious. good author to read in high school. <laughs> Well, I was curious about it because he was one of those that was sort of like lumped together with uh, Stephen King. And if you like creepy stuff, you would like this stuff. And uh, I I read, I, I liked the movie Candyman. I, I saw Candyman when it came out. I was in, I don't know if I was in like seventh grade, maybe eighth grade. And it it, it did a number on me. Um, seeing that in the theater in seventh grade was really gnarly. Um and so I, I knew of him. <clears throat> I read some of the stuff and it it probably just kind of went over my head when I was like in ninth or 10th grade. Going back to it now, I was really impressed with the writing. Like he's, <laughs> this sounds like damning with faint praise, but he's a really good writer. And, you know, I did a little bit of snooping around. He studied philosophy in English and then he really got a start in the theater. He was doing drama and directing 
And I was kind of curious, do you know, just right offhand, if you don't, that's fine, why he made the jump from, like, theatrical production to horror writing? Was it, hey, maybe there's money in this, or this is a kind of interesting thing for me to do, or I, I, any I, insights? I, I don't know that offhand. I'm sorry, man. Um, oh, that's okay. I, I mean, I assume this stuff must be rattling around in his head. This is not hack the kind of hack work you'd produce if you're just like, well, I bet they'll p- these idiots will pay me. No, I know. It's sort of like, all right, you know, the, the I guess the weird kind of irony or, or the story that they always told about Roberto Bolaño was that, um, you know, for years he was trying to make it as a poet. And then by the time he's in his 40s, he suddenly has uh, a, a wife and a child. And he's like, oh, shit, I better write something that'll make me money. So the things that he writes to try to get money are the most bizarre like short stories and weird experimental fiction. And you're like, you thought that would make you money? But um, no, I mean, Barker is, he he's actually a very good craftsman. And he has control over the text. He has control over the writing. You never feel like, it's not cringy in the way that I think Stephen King is often very cringy. Um, and King is not on our list, but I, I, I have him as a kind of parallel to Barker. King always strikes me as um, sort of drawing more from horror comics than the genre of horror. And there's something very literary about Barker, even though he's writing about a giant penis monster that's like ripping a kidney out and eating it like a raspberry. There's something really polished and literary and in control in in reading Barker. It was really sort of fascinating. And even though the gore was a little off-putting, I want to read more of Barker just because it it really is very concretely crafted. Um, I, I was very impressed with it, honestly. Yeah. Oh, but we, we can't not mention the fact that the thing that stops the giant monster... All right, so there's this other current running through this story, which is also kind of cool. It's, oh. it's folk horror in some ways. Yeah, right? we should probably do a, a quick summary on this, because we've been yeah, kind of talking ahead. around it. So uh, we open on the village of Zeal, which is apparently in Kent. I don't know enough about English geography to know what that means. It's a rapidly gentrifying town. Um, apparently, it's not that far out of London, so a bunch of Londoners are like checking it out. And some stay. And uh, we get a, a bit of background. And then we cut to a farmer who's, uh, you know, trying to plow a field that hasn't been plowed in his lifetime. Uh, he can't remember why it hasn't been, just some evil legend. He finds an enormous stone. Uh, it takes him a long time, but he manages to pu- uh, pop it open. And out pops a nine-foot-tall, like, monster with an enormous, just... Uh, a really, really big, like, bald head with a fringe of hair around it. An enormous mouth kind of at the lip of the head. Weird slit-like eyes. And um, it goes on a rampage. Um, it's repulsed by menstruating women and absolutely loves eating children. It seems to have a, an especial hatred of girls. And also, in a parallel thought, the local verger of the church has sort of sensed it's coming and is becoming its Renfield, which is very weird because this, you know, you can sort of understand falling for Dracula because Dracula is kind of sexy. Uh, this this is a nine foot tall, like, again, it, it's it's not explicitly this is a penis, but... You go look up a picture of it. it it's it's yes, yeah. yeah. The way he describes it, it's and, and the thematic elements in the story are very obvious. It's this masculine phallic monster that um, ultimately it, it's been buried in the ground for hundreds of years, 
and it is released and then sort of destroys the town and starts raging and tries to get this Frenfield character as its its acolyte. Uh, and, it succeeds. It literally baptizes him, which we'll talk about the subtext on this in a sec, but yes, it baptizes it, it, him by pissing on it, though. Yes, it's, it's extraordinarily disgusting. And then um, it rampages over the town until <clears throat> uh, the, the priest... It finds that there's something in the altar. The altar in the church is also hundreds of years old or, or maybe a thousand years old. It's like some kind of pre-Christian folk thing. And inside is the object that can stop Rawhead, the, the giant phallic monster. And the thing inside that can stop him is this statue of the eternal feminine. It's this sort of, um, I guess, Venus statue that is a at least as it's described what i took it to be was like a, a figure of a vagina well that... it's I, it's one of those like prehistoric like women yeah carved women that apparently cavemen used to jerk off to <laughs> yes and uh so one of the characters grabs it holds it up and um it's horrified dismayed it falls over and then they shoot it and beat it to death and hack it up until its blood just sort of runs down the stream. The end. Well, no, it's not its blood that runs down the stream. It's oh, it's piss. it's urine. Right. Yeah, you it's you right. texted me like while you were reading this and you're like, wow, there's a lot more urine in this story than I expected. Yeah, it's it's all over the place. But I mean, that's I guess Parker's really sort of making the subtext text in this one. It's it's got those elements of of British folk horror, sort of like Wicker Man type stuff, and the suggestion of like an older cult identity that goes back to some kind of prehistoric, you know, um, I guess primal connection with the natural world or with gender in this way. But he he takes it and does something so absolutely antithetical to the kind of like staid folkiness of something like wicker man and just uh it's it's a rough read but it's really well written and really kind of fascinating for what it is i mean i i think that's what what the jarring contrast is is that this is, is this is an extraordinarily well constructed short story like in terms of hopping between uh perspectives and control of hopping between perspectives in terms of you know basic construction and not making you sort of like there's no missed beats like when i i I go back to king whenever i read stephen king every five sentences i kind of cringe because he throws in some kind of like come on man you needed to edit that one out um either some weird observation or some reference to something or, or something that's just like out of place but here, everything is sort of like in its right place. It's just extraordinarily gross. Yeah. The, <laughs> the other thing that compares favorably to King is my impression, at least, is that King will often pull his punches or certain things will be off limits. And his, especially his later fiction, is quite safe in a way. Yeah. Whereas in yeah. this thing, like multiple children get eaten alive. Yeah, it's that was as a as a parent that was a little tough to 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 compass. But it goes back to this kind of destructive power this sort of generative thing that doesn't really care so much about the generation it cares more about the violence inherent in the active generation the suggestion is that rawhead only reproduces through um sexual assault 
Yeah. And that that is sort of stopped at the end by coming face to face with I guess the um the statue. Yeah, it's it's rough. I I'm, I'm not going to say it's not, but it was sort of fascinating for, I mean, I guess I was just taken by how well it was written. Yeah. All right. So uh, the, yeah, go ahead. So um like I said, I I missed the subtext on this. But uh, mm. and then I actually read a review of Rawhead Rex the movie, and the guy just in a like paragraph at the end explained what was going on, and I'm like, oh shit, that's what I read. That's incredible. <laughs> Which uh, I guess I'm going to just lay it out here. Rawhead is essentially just a he's a god. He's a pagan god, of yeah. course, but he's the a rampaging masculine force. So, and once you realize that, a lot of things. Which again, tenth, I know this isn't going to blow your mind, Claude, but tenth grade me, it, it was like <laughs> holy shit type stuff. So uh, yeah. that's, for instance, the people he mind controls are all explicitly or tries to mind control. Rawhead has the powers of yeah. hypnosis. Are all explicitly servants of the Christian god because the Christian god is just another divine masculine albeit uh neutered and so on and then he of course gets defeated by the uh, divine feminine in the end and that's why he's scared of menstruation that's why so much of his stuff are like dominance and asserting control over other people at one point he literally castrates a man who he's a police captain so he might have been some kind of threat um Mm -hmm. and there's even a scene where he literally looks at a picture of jesus christ thinks that guy looks like a pussy and then jerks off yes it's like i said it's rough but um, also but, it's, it's astonishing to me that 10th grade lawrence missed that subtext but no i i think you're right that i think that's what barker's power is is that he takes that concept that's sort of like in i guess it's sort of like that inherent critique of patriarchal misogynistic religion he takes that subtext and then just makes it text in, in, in a way that's recognizable and also not recognizable. It's, it's like the uncanny in some way. You know what I mean? Um, and I'm not just trying to elevate this so we're not talking about gruesome stuff. It, it really does operate on, on both of those levels that it's disruptive and disturbing because of that. You recognize it, you know it, you don't recognize it, and you don't know it. And yet it's sort of pushing that, right? So conceptually, he will take it to its furthest limits, which is is really kind of like this fascinating thing, you know? Yeah. Um, also, do you think that that means that in the world of Rawhead Rex, at a certain point, like, Yakawe was running around the Middle East just, like, burning people alive and eating them before he kind of settled down and founded the Jewish faith and then Christianity? <laughs> I, I don't know. My reading of the Hebrew Bible is a little gnarly. Uh, I mean... Abraham had to talk him down uh, from destroying um, uh, destroying Sodom and Gomorrah. A- Abraham had to, to really sort of pull him back from, you know, some of the more gruesome stuff that he was going to do, right? Although, on the other hand, the Jewish God, canonically very bad at wrestling. I think Rawhead would be quite good at wrestling. So, <laughs> well, there's another data point for you. Trying to figure out the extended Rawhead Rex universe. Yeah, so, no, I, I think what you're referencing is ref, the the wrestling with the angel, and you know that that's true. Like, nah, I think, think that, the, apparently there's some debate about the translation, and there's a at least a chance that that was actually God. So yeah, yeah. So I I know what you mean. All right. So anyway, uh, that gets us to Laird Baron's oh, Shiva. Open your eyes. So uh, if you if you like books of blood. 
or Clive oh, Barker, yeah. go get more Books of Blood Volume 1 through 3 and then go look up the other what the other three were released under and read them. Although I think the collection falls off in Volumes 4, 5, and 6. They get a lot weirder and a lot less horrific. And then uh, if you're just like, I want gory, like much better written than it should be, fun stuff, Kate, Caitlin R. Kiernan is also quite good for this. So give her oh, okay. a little look. Gotcha. I might check that out. All right, so Laird Barron's Shiva, Open Your Eyes. Uh, this was an interesting one. Uh, now, okay, can you give us a quick summary and then tell us a little bit about how this connects back to Lovecraft? Okay, so I'm gonna, uh, I knew I needed to get some Lovecraft in because it was one of the predominant strains of horror in the 20th century, and it's still like a pretty big going concern here. But on the other hand, one, you guys had already covered Lovecraft, and two, actually reading Lovecraft, one he's not as good of a writer as he thinks he is. And that's the worst fucking thing a writer can be. I think, um, well also horribly, 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 horribly racist, which is another thing he was. Um, and I just, I find the discussion about him dispiriting, but I wanted to get a Lovecraftian thing. So, uh, I picked this because it's a Lovecraft pastiche kind of, but it does something I don't think I've ever seen done before. And it might never have been done before. So, uh, Laird Barron is a, quite a character. He grew up in Alaska. He's a former dog sled racing. I think he might've actually won the Iditarod. He's only got one eye. Uh, he apparently had quite a brutal childhood that somehow also included him reading a lot of weird fiction. And Mm -hmm. uh, now he lives in the Pacific Northwest and alternates between writing really like hard hitting crime thrillers and writing really awesome horror short fiction. And he, Mm -hmm. a lot of his stuff is Lovecraftian, but he's always had this unique take on Lovecraft where there's a, there's a pretty standard formula for a Lovecraft story. You know, you've got a scholar, they go to a place that they shouldn't or read a book that they shouldn't. It summons a monster in some way. The monster tracks them down. They drop a, they sort of explain what the monster is, but drop a lot of hints about a bigger world that they never really explain. There's a lot of unpronounceable, names and then the monster eats them or possibly there's a hint that the monster is an apocalyptic threat and the world's going to end and um you know i've read a lot of them because i was really into lovecraft when i was growing up so i read a lot of lovecraft pastiches um you can write a pretty paint by numbers one what baron will do instead is he will take a thing from the mythos maybe and kind of like file the serial numbers off and come at it from a different angle and sort of um twisted in a way where one it works even if you don't know like Yaglalanek or Cthulhu or you know Hastur or whatever um, right. we'll talk about that later and two if you um it will like let you see if you do are up on the mythos then with fresh eyes so uh for instance he's got a short story whose name I have forgotten it's the first uh entry in his collection occultation where it's sort of about the great race of yip but he focuses entirely on he doesn't include the time travel angle at all instead he focuses entirely on the fact that in the chronology of the great race of yip apparently there's these swarms of beetles that are going to take over the world after humanity dies and he's like well what are the beetles doing now what does that mean and he crafts this really creepy short story around like what it must mean that there's this other alien intelligence of like a hive mind living on earth and it's actually quite beautiful he's got excellent prose and he Mm -hmm. he's kind of cracked the code on how to do a good lovecraft story that's not just a straight pastiche and i i love his stuff um this one is unique because it appears as far as i know it is the only successful short story that is written from the perspective of what appears to be a lovecraftian god right which and 
it's not and the crazy thing is you'd expect you know you try to write a short story about cthulhu and it, it would be like this very generalized he rates in really yeah and he observes the world going by and w- awaits to be awoken and like mocks the feebleness of humanity or something whereas this one the elder god i think he chose or outer god i suppose is nyarlathotep um mm-hmm. the the you know messenger of the outer gods uh, with a thousand masks but he he never says the name Nyarlathotep or even makes that explicit. It's just sort of if you read the mythos, this is what it maps to. And he is an intensely personalized guy. He doesn't have access to all of his supernatural memories. He's, I think, kind of in love with the human tongue in a weird way. And he's got a sense of humor. Yeah, which... it's it's very okay. It's not knock down drag out hysterical but it, it's very ironic and it's very funny he he sort of seems to be in the guise of an old man who lives on a farm and there is some investigator coming to look he says he's a surveyor but the narrator who is the sort of outer god knows that he is some kind of investigator and knows everything about this guy and knows that he is there to look for a bunch of missing people who apparently he had something to do with their disappearance, so it's not quite sure what. And um, he just kind of messes with the guy a little bit and then shows him this giant, um, I guess, artwork sculpture thing that he's been working on, and the guy goes mad from looking at it. And then it's well, sort of uh, like wait, a medit- <laughs> the, the description of what happens to him after, the narrator describes himself as unfurling, and then yes. he says what happened to him was incomprehensible. And horrible, I suppose most people would say, though I disagree. <laughs> yes. So there's that irony. It is funny, you know, it's like to see what it's like from this perspective. But it's not a perspective that's necessarily absolutely denigrating towards a human. It's sort of like what you said, that he has a fascination for what it means to be human and is at least partially human in this incarnation. And is wondering what it means to be this and who he really is and what his actual identity is, mixing with all these memories together. And then sort of like the second half of the story is this meditation on, you know, remembering back in the old days or the old times what it was to be this primordial thing floating in the ocean and then what it was to be this primitive human and what it was to try to ask other human like priests and holy men what am i and then there's this cycle in the story it's apparently ties back to a reference in the dunwich horror where it's like after fall there is um winter and after winter spring and it's referring to the cycle of possession of the earth but for the narrator it actually refers to like what he is he's got this life cycle where in winter he retreats to the ocean in spring he comes forth but doesn't quite know what he is in summer he's got all of his powers in fall he's weakening and then in winter when winter comes he returns to the ocean and this is tied to the cycle of life on the planet and we open on him in fall so he's not in summer, there's this description of him in summer where all he has to do is will will something and it will happen. He wants followers, someone to eat, they come. He wants rain, there's rain. And now he's greatly diminished. But he doesn't seem to mind it too much, which is interesting to me. Yeah, I mean, it seems like he will go back to the water and then reform in the next cycle. I mean, like, all right, the... 
I imagined this being read and performed. If you were going to make a short movie out of this, I imagine Bruce Dern. Like, I think that's what we were sort of talking about. It's that kind of attitude towards things that can be kind of maybe a little bit crotchety, but also human and somewhat warm and empathetic. I, even I mean, not when empathy. there's like an icy coldness. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. He, but he's not dismissive of humans. It's more just like he's brutally honest about them. Like he sizes the man he meets up, not with disdain, but with perfect accuracy, which is aided by yeah. his sort of limited omniscience. So he knows everything about this man. He doesn't really make fun of him for like leaving his wife a lot, own a lot, but he also doesn't like call him a, you know, praise him for being a devoted husband or anything. It's just like, here's what this dude is. I can describe yeah. him to you. I know him. I feel neither hate nor love towards him. He is just another human like so many others I have seen. But it's not an adopted cynicism. It's just this kind of candor. And I think the the handling of tone is what makes this story really sort of work. You know, yeah. what would it be like to be something other than human that's also in some ways trying to figure itself out? Yeah, you know? he's, he's questioning about his own existence in some way, even though he knows more than we know. You know, yeah. Um, there are other horror or Lovecraft short stories that are narrated from the creates perspective of a mythos creature. I mean, famously, the Shadow over Innsmouth. That's the twist at right. the end. Usually, though, they will have the reveal be a twist. Or, and they'll all also, I've never seen one from one of the gods. It's usually like a deep one or something. I think actually all of the ones I've read are deep ones, I guess because they start off as human. Um, and I guess writing one from the perspective of a Shoggoth would be tr tricky. Um, <laughs> oh, and, and then it ends with this lovely monologue of him sort of accepting what's going to happen and preparing himself to go into the world. Um, and he says, like, there is no devil, just me, and I do as I am bid. And yeah. um, then he says that it's better <clears throat> that humans don't find out the, how the, what the world is because they would realize then that god created it or whatever created it he the narrator has some memories of the creation but they don't really fit in his head anymore because he's human and limited by that a little um but god created it to suffer because god feeds on suffering and also will feed on us and then he says uh, god is hungry i know because i am his mouth and the story ends, <laughs> and it's a hell of an ending line <laughs> i know that yeah that's yeah uh... It was unnerving, but yet there's you can't help but feel for the narrator in some way. Like there, there's this honest. This is what I always come back to with this one was that there was this honest questioning. Like he is curious about what he is, and sort of interested. And there's this striving and trying to understand, and so he understands a lot. But there's still something back there that he can't quite understand. But as you said, this kind of acceptance of the cycle, and he apparently just goes back to the water to sort of dissolve into it and then become again in the spring. It's, yeah. it's, it, what makes this story work is really its tone, that, that weird sort of irony, but also this attempt to try to think through what it would be like to be other, right? Really other inhuman other and i think that's really what makes it work all right 
Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Oh, and so if you're interested in checking out other Lovecraft stuff, but don't want to actually go read Lovecraft, which totally fair, uh, early Ramsey Campbell will get you there. <clears throat> Later Ramsey Campbell, he goes more sort of folk horror and does his own thing, which is also very good, but not Lovecraft. Uh, T. E. D. Klein. Uh, I think he has a collection called Dark Gods that's quite hard to find, but anything from there, especially Black Man with Horn, which um, almost but not quite makes the Cho-Cho's not racist. Um, <laughs> then for more modern stuff, John Langan, and uh, I also quite like Brian Lumley, if you're just like, I want bog-standard mythos stuff, but done with some flair. And finally, mm. if you want... There have been some number of attempts recently to kind of reclaim Lovecraft's tropes from Lovecraft himself and, like, confront directly their racism. And of these, yeah. the one I liked best is The Ballad of Black Tom by Victor Lavelle, so, uh, okay. which is a rewrite of a very early Lovecraft story called The Horror at Red Hook and well worth your time. Gotcha. Cool, cool, cool. You know what The Horror at Red Hook is now? Uh, um, all them fucking hipsters, am I right? No, it's the Ikea. That's where the Ikea is in New York. All right. So anyway, um, that's Laird Barrett. Now, the next one on the um, – sorry, it's a dumb joke. Next one on the, the list is Nadja Balkin's Propatria. And this was a riff on the King in Yellow. Yeah. Right? So uh, – so, Sorry. Yeah, go ahead. So uh, the King in Yellow, uh, it, it centers on some words that were invented by Ambrose Bierce, Hastur, Holly, and Carcosa. But it has nothing to do with them. It was invented by an 1890s author called Robert W. Chambers, who published a short story collection called The King in Yellow, which is weird because it's like about 80% apparently shitty historical romances. But it has three absolutely dynamite <laughs> horror stories in it for basically no reason. These horror stories are the mat, or sorry, the repairer of reputations in The Court of the Dragon and The Yellow Sign. And they all center in some obscure and elusive way around the concepts of Hastur, which it's not clear what it is, Carcosa, which is probably but not assuredly an accursed city, and a play called The King in Yellow, where the first act is pretty boring and prosaic, but if you read even a page of the second act, you will be compelled to finish it, and it will drive you a kind of decadent insanity. The stories mm. are noteworthy because The King in or The Yellow Sign is kind of a straight-ish horror story, albeit the thing that happens is, in it is still very inexplicable and weird. Uh, but the repairer of reputation, or the in the court of the dragon, is like very elusive and very hard to figure out what's going on. And the repairer of reputations has a um, narrator who is literally so unreliable that you're not sure if the story is science fiction or if he's just misinterpreting like 19- 1890s New York and thinking it's the future. It's nuts. Right. Um, and the, it. So um, he writes these three short stories, and then apparently the collection sells well, but it's mostly from the shitty historical romances, so he writes, turns out a lot more of those. He wrote some other horror fiction, but it's not very good to the point where it's actually kind of hard to find now because no one cared to save it. Um, and then he, he buys a big mansion in New York and retires and just lives off you know, the fact that he wrote all of these books that people like. Um, Hastur, uh, Lovecraft was an enormous fan of those three stories and mentions Hastur in the short story The Whisperer in the Darkness, although it's unclear what it is. And then August Derleth picks up on that and uh, turns Hastur into Cthulhu's, I think, half-brother or brother, and he's just another giant tentacle monster. The play still exists, but it's just a way of summoning Hastur. He loses all of the interesting parts because he's like, you know what the Cthulhu mythos needs? Another fucking tentacle monster. Uh, (laughs) It's it's not the worst idea Derleth had. I'm very grateful to him for... um, 
preserving Lovecraft's work, even though as you know, I keep saying I'm ambivalent about Lovecraft. But um, the the man the man had weird ideas about what made Lovecraft scary and how to make it like write his own fiction. Um, right. So for a long time, that's where you know Hastur was just another one of the mythos beasties with people would pull off the shelves when they were writing it. But uh, more recently, people started going back to the original Robert W. Chambers, and they're like, "Wow, this is actually like totally different and way weirder and scarier and kind of unlike anything else because it's like heavily surrealist." And Cthulhu sort of breaks reality, but in a lot of these stories, it's not clear that reality exists to begin with. You know, right, right, um, and. Um, I picked this one because I kind of was going to make you read the original Robert W. Chambers, but then it's like, eh, I don't know. It's it's from so long ago, and I really admire it, but, you know, we've, we've done a lot of old stuff. Let's get something modern. And I, I read about this short story in the very excellent Rereading the Weird and the Lovecraft Reread columns on Tor, which I heartily, Tor.com, which I heartily recommend mm. to everybody. And once I'm like, oh my God, this person was like, what if I combine the king in yellow with like post-colonial theory? I'm like, fucking soul, let's go. <laughs> and I, I, to get the collection, I literally, it wasn't available. I wanted a, a hard copy. I don't like eBooks. And I, so I literally had to, go in and get my aunt in England to order it from Chaosium because for some reason their warehouse there had it and nowhere else. And she like shipped it across the pond for me so that I could have it. And I gobbled it up and I really love this story. It's like this weird mixture of Ionescu's The Rhinoceros together with The King in Yellow and then just like um, it's of, I I would argue, fairly thinly veiled um, Indonesia and just it's Mm. wild, awesome stuff. Yeah, so it's this political philosopher <clears throat> in a post-colonial country that has gone through a revolution and overthrown the colonial dictators and is now, it has established, I guess what you would call a republic, some kind of constitutional system. And the president is a former student of this um, scholar but things, when we begin the story, things in the post-colonial state are sort of not great. Like, they're still sort of dealing with, okay, it's in the post-revolutionary phase, and things are, you know, they're getting off their feet, but there's also this kind of pessimism on behalf of the, on, on behalf of the scholar. And he's critical of the ways that certain kinds of colonial attitudes are still popping up in in the culture and so he um there's this book that's sort of like a a colonial book that starts appearing untranslated and people are reading it and it's the king in yellow and more and more people are reading it and as they do they come to occupy the sort of colonialist mindset and sort of reinscribe a kind of authoritarianism onto the post-colonial state. That's sort of like what's happening throughout. And so it is this kind of like post-colonial allegory where the once the revolution is completed, the revolutionaries begin to behave like the colonialists, and they go through this period of... Um, I guess extermination where anything against the, they become authoritarians. The president becomes dictator for life and anything that is against his reign is considered, um, 
I guess, revanchist or um, anti-revolutionary. And so anyone he deems anti-revolutionary is executed. And so it's sort of like inadvertently through the, the maddening influence of this colonial text that sort of reappears, they um, replicate the colonial state, right? So it's sort of like that, that idea that once this system gets so embedded in the consciousness of the culture, it's, it's extraordinarily difficult to rid yourself of the, the colonial consciousness, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's it's a, a really gripping story. And, like, you can't separate the horror from the political allegory. And I think that was one of the things, is that the, the politics of it are so horrifying. The politics of colonialism are horrifying, you know? And that sort of ups the ante. I don't think it's a situation where it's just trying to use general historical atrocity as a means of gaining affect. Like I know that's one of the the sort of critiques of the recent Candyman. I I kind of can't jump into this too far because I haven't seen the movie, but one of the critiques I was seeing from several critics was this idea, okay, so you're you're using the African American experience as or 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 racial inequality as this source of horror, but what are you actually saying? What are you doing besides using historical atrocity for affect, right? Um that was the critique. I don't know if that's a, an apt critique or not, but it is a critique that one can make, I suppose. Um I don't think Propatria is doing that. I think this is this is saying something and working through something and using the genre of horror to sort of work through that in a way, you know what I mean? Yeah. So I don't think this was, yeah, go ahead. It's here. The, um, the play, the King in yellow becomes like, you know, it, it, I guess I'm not going to critique this because I couldn't do better and so on, but Mm. it is the, the allegory is sort of like unusually blunt with the King in yellow becoming like literally the infectious madness of the colonial mindset that can be spread from person to person. Um, It's very interesting stuff. I, I, I actually don't have that much more to say about it aside from that. It's really, really cool. And you guys should check it out. It's a little hard to find. Uh, you can get it on Amazon and Casilda's song, which is an anthology. You don't have to go to England if you're okay with the Kindle version though. (laughs) Thank you. And that finally gets us to Mariana, Mariana Enrique's Uh, neighbor's courtyard. Oh, God. You you keep cutting me off, dude. Sorry, sorry, sorry. (laughs) So uh, the if you're interested in Propatria, obviously, I mean, it might not even be comprehensible if you haven't read the Robert W. Chambers ahead of time. At the very least, the presence of like this figure in a yellow robe is going to be like play significantly different to you, I think. Uh, but uh, aside from um, so read those repair of reputations uh, in the court of the dragon, of the yellow sign, uh, other Nadia Bulkin. She has an excellent collection called She Said Destroy that I would check out. And finally, um, if you're interested in um, other offshoots of the King in Yellow that don't just do the Lovecraft nonsense. There are two very. Let me wait. I gotta Google something real quick. Uh, first, there's uh, a collect or a short story called "I've Come to Talk to You Again" by Carl Edward Wagner that explores these themes in the context of like an aging writers group in London, which is quite good. And then 
I got to get this off for author. There is another Carl Edward Wagner short story called The River of Night's Dreaming that sort of, it's closer to a story Chambers would have written, very focused on sort of the decadence of people, but it's also weirdly kind of a retelling of the plot of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. <laughs> but it's okay, like, actually, now I'm in. it's actually very like well done and scary and it's worth checking out. So. Uh, I've come to talk to you again, and The River of Night's Dreaming, both by Carl Edward Wagner. Gotcha. Okay. All right. So now that gets us to Mariana Enrique's Neighbor's Courtyard. And uh, this was harrowing. Um, Yeah. I told you to fuck you up. Yeah. This whole collection, uh, Things We Lost in the Fire, is... It, it it did a number on me. It's it's really gnarly. Enrique is, is an Argentinian author. And a lot of what she writes about is sort of like the um, sort of living on the edge in Buenos Aires in certain certain ways. And this one is about, uh, I, I guess she occupies that realm of literary horror or like high-end literary horror. But I, I think you were making the case that with a lot of that stuff, it's, it's more about the posture, the pose, and it doesn't like go for the throat. And Enriquez goes for the throat. Yeah. Like, there's stuff in here that's just... Uh, so my, my experience of literary horror is probably tilted by, you know, sort of just general prejudices and stuff I picked up growing up. But uh, it's my belief that there are sort of... You can get away with publishing kind of semi-genre fiction and it will get you in, you know, classier... Um, you know, short story publications, you know, like Pushcart or whatever, as long as you kind of imply the violence a little bit, but like stop far short of it. So in the first story, for instance, it's about a woman who gets obsessed with a murder in her neighborhood and this <clears throat> pregnant homeless person who also has a child and then the child, the pregnant homeless person's child and the also the one she's carrying inside disappear and it ends with her confronting her the homeless woman asking where they've gone and she just laughs and said, I gave them to him, but they never explain what that means. And it's still pretty scary, but that's the kind of stuff that I think you could get published in like the New Yorker or right. best horror or whatever. But if you actually showed what happened to the kid, obviously no one's going to like maybe New Yorker, maybe because occasionally they'll reach out, but definitely you're not going to get like put in America's best short fiction of the year or anything. But as the right. collection goes on and on and on, she starts getting more and more explicit with the stuff until we get to like this one or the next one in the, collection under dark water is an out and out lovecraft pastiche with all that implies i'll be right. an excellent one um, uh you want to summarize yes. or should i i'll take it so this one okay. uh it this couple moves into a house and slowly we begin to understand that the the wife has had some kind of breakdown she's she got fired from her job and the the marriage is on the rocks and uh, crucially she got fired from a job as a social worker managing a group home because although it was not it wasn't quite her fault but she like neglected a kid who had an injury in exchange for like getting drunk and high downstairs it's less right. bad than it sounds in the story but ever since then her husband hasn't been willing to like look at her in the eye and she's felt desperately in need of redemption yeah and so she had a, a sort of depressive breakdown and perhaps a, a suicidal episode 
and she's trying to sort of get back on track and complete the three classes she needs to complete her degree while her husband is working. And they have a cat and they have this kind of like terrace that looks over into the neighbor's courtyard. And she thinks she sees a, a kid's leg chained up out there, like a kid chained up by the leg. And she thinks she sees the chain in the leg. And so she calls her husband over to look and he doesn't see anything. I, oh, before, yeah, before that, she hears this pounding on the door and they think somebody's trying to break in the house. And she also it's, sees a figure crouched at the foot of her bread at one po- bed at one point that looks like a child but run- moves like a cat. Yeah. Creepy. And so, and so she doesn't know what this is. She doesn't know what's going on. She sneaks into the neighbor's house and finds the chain but then the neighbor seems to be coming home so she makes she, it back to her house well she also finds a cabinet full of raw meat a yes. wall with crazy crazy scrawlings on it and an anatomy textbook with a drawing of an enormously pregnant woman where the baby has a giant penis and is like glabrous i think they're called eyes and just looks yeah free. so it's some real like you know, you found the slasher, the mad slashers movie dungeon type stuff. Yeah, it's it's just creepy. So she runs back to her house, goes inside, and there's this weird kid gremlin monster thing on her bed that eats her cat and then seems to be coming for her. And then it ends with, she thought it was a dream, but you can't feel pain in dreams. Yeah... Um, you know, as a parent who, uh, frequently has small children run into his room in the middle of the night going, I can't sleep and just jump on the bed. Yeah. This one hit close to home. Um, no, it's, it's really well written. It's really well done. It's got all those elements of psychological horror that, um, are sort of, uh, you know, they're kind of pat to a degree, but what she does with them is sort of rejuvenates them in a way. You kind of see some of this stuff coming, but then you really don't because you expect, I I think the literariness causes you to expect that this is some like William James or not William James, Henry James, turn of the screw. uh, We're going to sort of rest in uncertainty and ambiguity, but no, there's a damn monster at the end. You know? Yeah, I was legitimately surprised when the kid showed up and did whatever he did to her. It's uh, it's nuts, especially since the rest of the short collection, it had had some things, but they were all pretty subtle. And to suddenly just have a monster show up and eat someone, I'm like, fuck yeah. yeah. I mean, the other short stories are also very good, but they're much more on the sort of Shirley Jackson or uh, maybe knife point horror tip. Nothing just like, yeah. you know, weird fucked up kid going to do some weird fucked up shit. Yeah, so this, I mean, that whole collection, though, is, that was the one that got me. In fact, out of this whole project, this collection was kind of like the gem, uh, at least for me. Like, my my affective response was really pretty strong with this one, because it did get under my skin, but it was also so compelling. And um, I, out of everything we read, I, this is the one that really, it, it hit. Like, for whatever reason, this one really, really hit. Like, this whole collection really hit. So I, I at least want to thank you for bringing this one to my attention. I, I really enjoyed this, it, if, if enjoy is the right word, you know. 
Yeah. Oh, and, and as for why I picked this one, uh, I read this in 2018 during a brief um, incident or period of time when I'm like, I'm tired of fucking around on t- online. I'm going to knuckle down and start reading books again. Uh, mm-hmm. But I made the mistake of like drinking three cups of coffee because I thought it would help me focus, which means that although I know for a fact I read this, I have basically no memory of it. <laughs> so I was very happy to rediscover it. And I picked it just because it's like, well, every other author we've done, they've been from like America or England um, and or I, well, I guess Nadia Bulkin is um, I believe she grew up in Jakarta, but yeah. still very Eurocentric and uh, totally English centric. So I was looking for something that was like, in translation and to see what horror was like outside of America. South America, I believe, actually, because of the sort of influence of magical realism, has a surprisingly strong horror con- um tradition although it's a horror more inflected with that sort of magical realist we never quite explain what's going on thing which Mm -hmm. can be cool but whatever whereas the this a lot some of the short stories in this collection partake in that a little bit there's one where a person's husband just disappears and they never explain it and it's basically fine because he was an asshole but um this one it it's a lot more like concrete and to my eye, at least, seems more influenced by uh, Western stuff, this particular story. Or not West, gotcha. I apologize, North American. Yeah, thank you, thank you. I, I apologize, and also if that was somehow racist, I apologize unreservedly. <laughs> yeah, and you're not being ironic there, you're you're being straight up. No, I mean, no, no, I, I, yeah, I, you whatever. A, no, you make a sincere effort, and this is what I really sort of admire about the list that you put together. You really did make an effort to try to think, okay, what are the variations and permutations? What is representative? Um, what kinds of other stories are told outside of the Anglosphere, outside of, you know, sort of upper middle class white guy traditions? You know, what are the other kinds of, like, the, the varieties of kinds of stories that can be told in this? And I, I really respect that. I admire that. And then thank you for bringing that to our attention, you know? Um, this has been really, really fascinating and fantastic. Uh, a little bit on the gruesome side here and there. Well, you asked me to just... show you a bunch of horror stories, man. <laughs> and so what else are you going to do? But I, I really want to thank you for bringing all of this to the table. This this has been a really fascinating project. And it, it at least inspired me when I have the time to go out and try to track down some more of this stuff. You know, not everything hit in the same way and there's some things i might need to avoid in the future but uh, this was a really great you know beginning list and and i'm actually enthusiastic about checking some more of your recommendations out thank you so much no problem thanks so much for having me claude it's always a treat and i i enjoy talking to you in basically any format all right so that sort of wraps it up for uh tonight's agoraphobia please listen to lawrence's podcast uh bad time radio it's it's a whole lot of fun and they do you guys find some some radio shows from all kinds of wild places and you know some of them like some of the stuff you've shared with me is legitimately creepy and then there's some other stuff that you find where all right, I'm not going to ruin it. You know but what? There's I'm, I'm one about give, a gorilla. Yeah, I, I'm going to give you guys a little bit of a teaser. Gorilla opera singer. Yeah, that, that doesn't one. understand how silly it is. That's important. 
Yes, uh, they did an episode on a gorilla opera singer. So please go check out Bad Time Radio. Um, if you enjoy listening to literary stuff or high literary stuff, please check out Daniel and me on uh, The Cannonball. And please check out the rest of the Agoraphobia shows. We've been uh, working all month on these, and there's some really fantastic, wonderful, creepy stuff on here. So thank you very much. Enjoy the spooky season, and I guess we'll be back next Halloween. Yeah, bye, everybody. A warm welcome back to those of you who made it back. And a little bit of advice to take with you before you go. Not all knowledge is safe and some things you can't unhear. The smartest of you will count your blessings and stay clear of dark corners and dangerous downloads. But those of you more daring who laugh in the face of fear will undoubtedly be back like a moth drawn to the flame for the next installment of Agoraphobia. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.